One of the things that is hard is that like when DevRel's going well, everything kind of gets easier. You know, sales is easier. You have word of mouth effect. You have community feedback. People love the product. And a lot of times DevRel doesn't actually get credit for that. They go to, ends up going to the credit of the sales team or the product or engineering team because these are kind of ancillary effects of having a great community. And it can be really hard to connect community to business outcomes sometimes. Welcome to the DevRelX podcast, the podcast brought to you from the DevRelX community and slash data. This podcast is devoted to developer marketing, relations, and advocacy. I'm Stathis Yorgakopoulos, and I'm your host. In each episode, we welcome a guest from the developer marketing world to talk about best practices, lessons learned, how-tos, data, and share insights and experiences to help you boost your DevRel game and win developers' hearts. You can find more people like you and resources, developer ecosystem data, news, jobs, and a bi-weekly digest at devrelex.com. Hello and welcome to a new episode of the DevRelX podcast. Let me welcome today's guest, Sean Falconer, who is the head of developer relations at Skyflow. Sean, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I'm excited to be here. As a child, what did you want to be when you grew up? I think a lot of the probably typical stuff of someone growing up in a small rural community in Canada. So things like a teacher and a doctor, you know, normal occupations that you saw. And of course, professional hockey player. But then I think in high school, for a little bit, I was interested in being an anthropologist. I like the idea of kind of understanding human behavior and culture. But then in the late 90s, which coincided with me being in high school, that was really the growth of home computers and the internet. And I became absolutely obsessed. You know, internet was, you only had 20 to 30 hours of dial up a month back then, but it was free from midnight to 8 a.m. And I would get up at 5 a.m. before school and work on websites and learn the program and hack on things. And uh, my dad sort of recognized that I was interested in this and, and that I was good at it. And he really encouraged me to pursue computer science because I think he saw the world going that way. And it was the dot-com boom. And he saw a future there for me. And typical teenager, I resisted that idea at first because my dad was presenting it to me. But eventually... I realized my dad was right and that I should go into computer science. And I was very lucky in the school that I had, even though not a ton of people had, you know, the teachers there were trying to adapt to this changing times. It was hard for them, but they were very accommodating where they even created a special class for me, where in my final year of high school, two classes a day, I would spend essentially just like running network cable and setting up computer labs and debugging computers and things like that. So I ended up entering, doing an undergrad in computer science. I almost quit my first year because I was bored. But then I ended up spending a decade in school doing three degrees in computer science as well as a postdoc. Yeah, that's, that's great. And I, I love how you say, you know, uh, that you almost missed out on this career path just because your parents told. But I guess this is what uh, all of us were like as teenagers. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah want to tell us more about your journey, you know, from a, a teacher who then an anthropologist and then computer science person, you know, setting up LAN connections after school to leading developer relations at Skyflow. Yeah, so I one of the reasons I spent 10 years in university and doing three degrees and then eventually a postdoc was I had aspirations of being a professor or professional researcher. And a big reason for that was because I was always interested in lots of different things. And I thought that being a researcher or a professor would give me the freedom to kind of pursue whatever my interests were. So I, my undergrad was focused on theoretical computer science. My master's was in machine learning and my PhD was in human-computer interaction and software engineering. And then my postdoc was in bioinformatics. So I kind of did a spectrum of different things. And I taught 
human computer interaction, algorithms and data structures, and as well as competitive computer programming. And I ended up at Stanford with postdoc in bioinformatics. And during that time, I realized a couple of things. One, I wasn't really sure that research was for me. I was pretty good at it. And there was parts of it that were very interesting, but I think I, I just like building products too much. And being in the heart of Silicon Valley and Palo Alto, it was just such an exciting time, like the idea of going and building something that people were actually going to use versus research where, you know, maybe six people in the world cared about what I was doing. And so I ended up starting a company while I was still at Stanford with two other students there. One was in the design school and one was in the MBA program. And after a year of kind of balancing being a student plus the startup, I ended up leaving Stanford to do it full time. And we had just raised uh, seed money for our startup of around $2 million. And then we did all the classic things that you aren't supposed to do as startup founders. We screwed up a ton. After 10 months, we essentially had to lay off everybody in the company. And two weeks after that, one of my co-founders left the company. And then a couple of weeks after that, one of our key, like, key hire that we held on to left the company. And there's too many details to really get into. It's uh, probably a podcast in itself. But we ended up rehiring one of the engineers that I'd, we had to lay off. We actually laid him off on day two of him joining the company, which was terrible. And he was sleeping on my couch at the time because he had nowhere else to live. He just moved to San Francisco from Canada. And he rejoined us. So it was myself, my co-founder, Pablo, and this, and this engineer, Eric, that we rehired. And the three of us essentially rebooted the company from scratch. We finally started doing the right things, focused on you know customer-centered design. And we were able to get a product that we grew and became somewhat successful. And I operated that business for seven years. And through that, even though as a technical co-founder, I ended up doing content marketing and building a sales team and all kinds of different things that you have to do in a, you know, sort of not heavily funded smaller startup. And after seven years of operating that business, we got it to cash flow positive and I was ready for something new. So I decided it was time to step away. I stayed on as a consultant for a year and then we ended up selling that company to another company. And at the time, I knew I was ready for something new, but I wasn't quite sure where I fit in the world. I've had this kind of huge breadth of experience across a lot of different domains, but I'd never really spent a huge amount of time focused on any one thing. So I wasn't sure what that would mean for the job market. I didn't feel like I had the experience to walk into you know, executive or director level at a really big company. And at the same time, I didn't want to start too junior or too boxed in because I knew I would be bored. And I started taking interviews and looking at things in marketing and product as well as engineering. Uh, mostly on engineering uh, jobs. And I had been referred to Google as a software engineer from a friend of mine that worked there. And they called me and they were like, hey, we, you know, we saw your background where you had taught at university and competed in these computer programming competitions and spoke at conferences and written papers, as well as founded a company. And we think that this combination of skills could make you really good fit for developer relations. And I was like, awesome. What is developer relations? And I had no idea at the time. And then once they explained what it was, that it was engineering, I kind of mixed with other things like, you know, marketing or product and that a lot of it is about communication and, and speaking to developers outside of Google and making them excited about the product and educating them and being on the forefront of technology as well as sharing feedback back to the internal teams. I got really excited about it. And I was like, oh, wow, this is kind of like the perfect fit for me. It's a, a, an area where 
being a million miles wide and an inch deep on a lot of things is actually an advantage rather than a disadvantage. And on top of that, I was given this amazing opportunity at Google, found developer relations for a new product area. So it was the new function for a brand new product area. And that's something that not a lot of people get to do at a company as big as Google, especially coming in with technically no developer relations experience. And I got to build that program from scratch, build a team. It was an amazing experience. But after you know four years or so of doing that, I really miss startups. I miss the speed, being mission-driven. Also, Google is very much a kind of developer, developer relations experience. And I wanted to work on something that was developer first. So I ended up joining Skyflow in January of this year as the head of developer relations. It's an amazing company solving, I think, one of the biggest, most important challenges facing the technology industry today, which is data privacy. And now I'm doing all that sort of founding and starting something from scratch all over again, building a team, but figuring out the zero to one. But that's something that I really, really enjoy. Yeah, that's definitely a hell of a journey. And, you know, I really like the the energy you, you know, the way you talk, you, you bring, and I can see you, you know, bringing it to the things you do and the things you're passionate about. Listening to the the story you just said, you know, I just kept thinking that, okay, you know, even though, as as you said, you didn't have any technical experience, you know, in developer relations, you know, all the skills and the different uh, things you you've done, perfectly add up together, you know, to make make you working in developer relations a great fit. So uh, thank you for sharing your story. And now let's talk data. Can you please pick a graph from devrelex.com slash trends and tell us what stands out to you and why? Yeah, for sure. So the graph that, I, that caught my eye was this one on how developer program readers segment their audience. And the thing that really caught my eye on it is that 20% of the people who responded to the survey or one in five say they don't segment their audience at all. And I just thought that was really surprising because I feel like segmentation is such an important thing to, to do in terms of segmentation helps you target your message. It's how you, I think, more authentically engage with people. You know, if you try to essentially appeal to everyone, you appeal to no one. It's kind of like if you try to build a product for everyone, then you're just going to end up with this like hodgepodge of features that is not very focused and doesn't necessarily speak to one particular individual. So I think the other thing is that focusing on smaller groups, I think, makes it easier to create a healthy community. If you think about community density as a measurement of health and engagement in a network, where it's the ratio between existing connections and potential connections, well, if you're targeting essentially everyone in the world, even if that ultimately is your goal, at the beginning, your potential connections is so huge versus in, in contrast to your actual connections that it's going to be really diluted and your community density will be very small, meaning it's less healthy and less likely to lead to network effects. And by having a smaller focus network of community, then you're more likely to kind of get interconnections between different people in the community leading to more word and mouth effects. And there's, of course, a balance between like a focus community that's too narrow and as well as being too broad. So it's really kind of towing the line between what is too narrow and what is too broad to do it right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Uh I completely agree with you. And uh, also, I have to say, you are also a very active member uh, of our DevRelX community and you attended our first ever DevRelX session. And uh, also, you wrote a great article on uh, building a developer program strategy. And you shared data from the developer program leader survey that we ran. And uh, by the way, I want to say to our listeners that the sur the sur this survey is uh, now and it's for everyone who's working in the developer marketing relations uh, or advocacy world. Uh, the results will be shared freely with everyone uh, so we can all better understand the 
developer relations world and you can uh, find it and take the survey at devrelex.com slash surveys. And I do strongly encourage you to check out Sean's blog I just mentioned. It's at seanfalconer.com and the Devrelex blog. Just wanted to mention it because you used several of the data uh, from our latest developer program leader survey. And I do believe it's a great read for everyone who wants to better understand, you know, how building uh, a developer program strategy works. And speaking of strategy, Sean, what are your priorities in your DevRel strategy? Yeah, so I think, I mean, just kind of speaking in generalities, I think strategy really depends on the company product, the stage of the company, areas of focus. If you think about developer relations as this combination of uh, developer marketing, developer education, developer success, and developer experience. You know, Google, a lot of my focus was on developer experience as well as success, and a lot less so on marketing. And that has to do with Google has you know a very well known brand. It has existing channels that you can really tap into. That so it's less about you know going out and making people realize that Google exists as a company that's kind of already <laughs> that's already done. So, but. And ultimately, your your strategy has to be aligned with the company objectives and goals. Skyflow is a Series B startup, so it's very different in terms of like brand awareness in comparison to a company like Google. And and I think for me, like one of the things that I have to really think about is balancing the action versus strategy. So I think my impulse, I have a very strong impulse for like a bias towards action, but. As someone who's founded a company and has made lots of you know mistakes in their life, I also realize now that I have to slow myself down, and you really need to focus on strategy and planning before you can kind of hit the hit the ground running. You know, Yogi Berra said that if you don't know where you're going, you'll end up someplace else, and that certainly was the case in the first year of my startup. So when I joined Skyflow, I really wanted to immerse myself in the product, customers, prospects in the domain, and start thinking deeply about where I wanted us to be in terms of developer relations in five years and then in the shorter term, six months. And a big thing for a company at a stage that Skyflow's at is we really need to focus on developer market. We need to grow awareness of Skyflow, evangelize the challenges the companies face when it comes to data privacy in both regulated and unregulated industries and how technology, the technology of a data privacy vault solves those challenges, which is the product offering from Skyflow. And also just foundational things around, like figure out what our brand and voice should be to developers. What do our videos look like or other types of content that we create and really start to build the foundation of that. And before, you know, jumping in and, and starting to like hire a team. At the same time, I'm also focused on developer experience and success. And we have teams that own parts of that as well. So I, I, my role is more partnering with engineering and product to help influence and guide them to do things that they needed. And I think one of the big things that I always think about when it comes to something like developer marketing is ultimately you you can do all the marketing in the world, but you also need to make sure that you don't have a leaky bucket when people arrive. So I also think it's really important to focus on what is the experience and how do you make people successful as well. So that if you are doing your job of generating lots of eyeballs and interest in your product, that's great, but you also need to make sure that they're successful. Yeah, that's a, that's a great point with a leaking bucket. And uh, you mentioned, you know, I do get that you're more of an ac action or, you know, hands-on kind of guy, but, you know, obviously strategy is important to to set the course, let's say, of the where you want to go. And then it's the actions that are, let's say, the everyday things of what you will be doing to 
to either achieve the goal you set or, you know, go towards the direction you've set. But how do you measure the success of your strategy? Yeah, so I think measurement of success and metrics is probably one of the, you know, central challenges developer relations pr- programs face. And it's certainly like a, a topic that a lot of people in DevRel community spend uh, time discussing and thinking about. And I think one, one of the things that is hard is that like when DevRel is going well, everything kind of gets easier. You know, sales is easier. You have word of mouth effect. You have community feedback. People love the product. And a lot of times DevRel doesn't actually get credit for that. It goes, ends up going to the credit of the sales team or the product or engineering team because these are kind of ancillary effects of having a great community. And it can be really hard to connect community to business outcomes sometimes. For Skyflow, where, you know, I thought about through the first six months of where we want to be. And a lot of this is focused on awareness in the sort of developer marketing part. So it's that, which is where I need to spend the majority of my time. So I, I started with a target of what I thought was reasonable for six months out of, you know, what kind of awareness or audience do we want to build? And then I worked backwards from there in terms of the tactics that we need to apply for how we get there. And I still think, you know, you can, you can talk about awareness, but it's one of the hardest metrics to kind of build meaningfully. You know, it doesn't quite tell this full story. You end up with kind of a collection of like vanity metrics where you talk about page views or YouTube views or social engagement, but it's really hard to answer the fundamental question of, are those the right people? You know, I could put up a sign in my yard that says free beer and get lots of people to show up, but are those the right people? And are they moving ROI for the business? And those are kind of the hard parts sometimes to connect. And I think this is a challenge of all bottom-up marketing. You you have the implementers that you're appealing to, like the engineers or the solution architects or whoever it is that your audience are targeting, and they have influence over the buying decisions, but it's hard to know whether they actually ended up influencing that decision a lot of times. So... I think that's one thing. Certainly having like a metric like page views or views on a video is better than no metric, but you also need to think carefully about what you're measuring. And we tend to optimize the things that we measure. So you have to be careful about what you measure because you might end up optimizing the wrong thing. Yeah, definitely. Metric is a very hot topic. And, you know, as you just said, your last point, you know, you really need to be aware of what you're measuring and why. The real reason why you should be measuring you know how successful your program is is because you need to articulate let's say uh, the value of your developer relations program right so how do you articulate the value of the developer relations yeah so i think this speaks to another one of the big challenges that people in devrel face especially leaders in the space and ultimately you need to kind of create executive buy-in i think one of the it's often a challenge because people don't always understand what devrel is or what it does. And it's just the case, essentially, your job as the leader is to explain it and teach people, and as well as set the expectation when you're going through the interview process and get a sense for what the company, how the company sees the function that you're com- ultimately coming in to build and lead. At Google, I had a presentation that I developed called What is Developer Relations and Why Do We Pay These People? Which I gave regular presentations to essentially every six months or so to our org and product area on our activities and the impact that we had. But articulating value comes down to understanding the audience that you're speaking to. Just like when we address a developer audience, we want to do that in an authentic way that talks to the things that they care about, applies internally as well. For example, when I was at Google, 
we had launched a product where we initially launched it just with an API for sort of managing the experience. And it was this way of creating a business communication experiences. And the API was great. It's, you know, a foundational tool is how companies would scale their integrations. But I recognize that, you know, an API like that is also a very sophisticated tool. And I wanted us to spend time to build a developer console that would just make it easier for people to get started. And I had this whole vision in my head of how that should come together. And I knew that it would be impactful and effective for people. And I ended up pitching this thing like half a dozen times. And I'm super frustrated. I remember even getting up at 2 a.m. while I was on a, a work trip in India to do uh, uh, a local California time presentation that pitched this thing. And no one was getting it. And I could have, you know, threw my hands up in the air and said, like, these people were idiots and, you know, they'll never get it. But what I started to, I started to change my mindset and recognize that what I needed to do was articulate the console in terms of what it brought, uh, what value it brought to the people I was essentially pitching it to or the stakeholders that were going to make the ultimate decision about where the engineering resources go. And I was initially focused on how this product would enable developers to do uh, things better and more efficient. And it's not that the stakeholders didn't care about making developers successful, but they had a lot of priorities that they're trying to balance. And is that ultimately like the you know P0 item that they need to put engineering and product resources on at that moment versus developers will figure it out and we can you know use extra support costs to uh, supplement in the meantime. And the way it finally got through to people was not articulating it in terms of enabling our third-party developers, but in terms of the eternal costs that we could save. I really focused on how we were kind of wasting our existing engineering time on support tickets and some of these things that could be solved if we just launched this console. And if we would actually not only enable developers to move much faster, but we could actually enable our engineers to do more work. And that's definitely a metric that people care a lot about at Google because they want their engineers to be focused on building features, not dealing with something like support tickets. So that was really, really effective. And I think that's like a you know, lesson learned in, from my own experience of you, you always need to be thinking about who the audience is when you're articulating the value of developer relations. It might, things that matter to you might not be the best way to articulate to the audience that you're speaking to. This is a great point. This is a really great point. And, uh, you know, uh, you've made it, I think you've made it very clear about, you know, how, how do you explain the value? But if we look at it from uh, another point of view, let's say, from the business point of view, obviously, cutting down costs is a, is a great thing. And, you know, you can definitely grab the attention of the business owners or senior management when you mention it. Uh, but why do you know, businesses care, why do businesses need to care about developer relations? I think like one thing that's important to understand is that if you have a developer facing product, so developers are essentially your users, then you're probably already doing developer relations. You just might not call it that. It's kind of like if you don't have a function called customer support, well, there's probably someone at your business answering emails and performing the the duties of customer support. They just might be the engineer or the product manager, or maybe they're the CEO founder of the company, somebody's doing that work. And it's the same thing with developer relations. And I think that we've seen this transition with companies to understand how important having someone dedicated to UX is. You know, a lot of 
in the old days, a lot of software was built with essentially engineers as the designers. And eventually people realized that maybe that's not the best thing. And you hide the, and they hired people that were dedicated to doing it. And I think we're going through the same transition with developer facing products. And also, of course, the growth of the API economy that people recognizing that, well, it makes sense to hire someone who has expertise in this to actually own it so that we don't have, we're not diluting, you know, our existing engineering or product resources to, to manage this thing that maybe they don't have the experience or the interest in doing. Another thing that I think is really important for companies to understand is there's kind of this, I think, like think dichotomy when it comes to how companies think about com- competition when it comes to developer products. You know, we typically think about our competitors are the people who are competing on, you know, sales deals. And they are our competitors. But then there's competitors when it comes to something like developer experience and support and documentation. It's just like if you had a company where waiting in line was part of that experience. Well, your waiting in line competition is Disney because no one does lines better than Disney. And when it comes to developer experience, your competition is not necessarily your direct competitors. It's companies like Stripe and Twilio that have set the bar for what a great developer experience is. And that's what you're going to be comparing against because all the people that you're probably attracting in your company that are the implementers have all had amazing developer experiences with other products and they're going to compete comparing to that experience. So to stay competitive, you really have to care. It's not a nice to have at this point is a must have. Yeah, I completely agree. And thank you for, for sharing this example. Twilio uh, and you know Stripe have definitely set the bar too high on developer experience. But you know, looking at it again from the business point of view, how valuable do you think a developer is uh, for a business? So I, you know, in my article that I wrote recently on developer programs, like one of the things that came in the survey was talking about what, calculating lifetime value for a developer. And that was, I think, something really interesting that I hadn't really thought of articulating in that way before. And in the article, I kind of laid out a little bit of a one sort of mathematical formula for calculating LTV. And I, I do think that there's sort of challenges that go back to like what I was saying earlier, where it's hard to necessarily connect a developer being in your community to actually influencing a buying decision. But there are ways that I think you can approximate it. And I think one way when it comes to articulating value of developer relations program that could be effective for people is to look at something like lifetime value of a developer. And then you can essentially show the value of your, show the value of your community as actually a, like a financial outcome, which could be really impactful for people. I think there's other ways too that you can kind of articulate value of the developer. If you look at something like uh, content marketing, if you're writing articles that are targeting a developer audience, well, there are sort of financial ways of evaluating the value of an article. You, For example, you could write an article that targets some, some particular keyword. And that keyword, you can use Google Analytics or Google Ads tools to figure out what the value of that keyword is. So you can, if you own sort of that category from an organic uh, traffic standpoint, then you could be saving the company, you know, $50,000 a month in ad spend that they would have to, to, to spend in order to target that particular keyword. So I think there's a, like a multitude of ways you can kind of start to think about what the value of a one you know, individual developer is. Great, thank you. Yeah, I, I did you know, notice it and it struck out to me when I was reading it in your article. So, and I thought it really fit nice with you know, the discussion of how we talk about value. So I, I just had to ask. 
And I want to say you've, you've mentioned quite a few different topics. Uh, I'll use the word topics, you know, related to developer relations and strategy and, uh, you know, the whole action part of the strategy. But to do all these things, uh, I'm sure you need a team. So how do you build a developer relations team? You know, there's probably many, many ways to build a developer relations team. And, you know, developer relations can fit in a lot of different parts of an organization. It might be marketing, engineering, product, probably other areas as well. But I think a lot of it, of course, goes back to your strategy. What are your key metrics? How are you, how are you thinking about segmenting the audience and uh, the market and who would best appeal to those segments? And I think one key thing is you shouldn't hire before you have a way to measure performance. So setting those, starting with a strategy and figuring out what your targets are for the year and what are the KPIs that you're going to be measuring, you kind of have to be there before you start hiring and filling seats. You might end up hiring, you know, the wrong people or the wrong people with the wrong experience. At Google, I owned developer experience, developer go-to-market, education, success, documentation, as well as you know SDKs and, and client libraries. So I had a uh, you know wide breadth of ownership. So my team was made up of you know part engineering and part technical writers. But at Skyflow, there's you know our documentation is part of our our product. And so there's a team dedicated to that. So for me, it's a lot more about partnering with them. So it doesn't make sense for me to hire, you know, technical writers in this in this case. And I think one of the other things I think about when it comes to building a team is you really need to be careful. It's not just about your strategy, but it's also about fit for the team. And you need to be careful about who you hire, especially at the beginning, because they really set the t- tone for everyone else who joins. Attitude for me makes a big difference. You know, I made mistakes certainly in hiring. At my startup at times, and they're hard mistakes to make, but you hopefully don't make them again. For me, I really look for what I call like an and yes mentality. You know, I want people who, when you bring an idea to the table, they're not immediately seeing everything that's wrong with that idea 10,000 miles down the road. They're thinking about how do we make this thing better? How do we, you know, or if we're crunched for time, how do we actually make this happen? How do we deliver it? And I, I really like, you know, that kind of can do attitude and building each other up. And for me, I don't want clones of myself. I want, you know, a balanced and diverse team, people who can bring unique experience, unique backgrounds, have expertise or experience that I don't have. At Skyflow, at the stage that we're currently at, I'm really looking primarily for generalists. You know, we're a startup. There's a lot, which means there's a lot of different things to do, which is exciting. Uh, but you need kind of people who are capable of learning on the fly or, or, or have a breadth of experience. It's similar to having an engineering team that's like three or four versus 100. With three or four, you're probably going to need people who can do a bit of everything. And then over time, you start to perhaps carve out uh, specialization. However, typically developer relations teams still stay relatively small. So a lot of times you are kind of, I think, still dealing with a lot of generalists or people who have a wide breadth of experience and can, it can do a multitude of different things. And, and then my secret wish, of course, is I'd want to get someone in uh, DevRel with experience in the data privacy space, but it, that's a hard uh, person to find. So if you're out there and you're listening to this, please, uh, please ping me. Yeah, that's definitely a very niche request. I do hope you find this person, though. But I'd say that the main thing, you know, is, as you said, that the people who make this team should all be, you know, have complementing uh, skills with one another and all of them should tie uh, to the company strategy. That should be the end goal. 
you mentioned uh, a bit earlier, and I just, you know, through this podcast and the interviews we, we've done, you know, we always see how developer relations is, you know, in between the business and the developer. You know, sometimes, and I, it was Mary Thankfald who said, you know, that uh, developer relations, you know, represents the company to the developers and the developers to the company. Looking at that from the connection, in connection with the product, how do you influence change, you know, to the product to do what's right uh, for your audience? Yeah, I think that's a great question. And I think it's a, definitely like a core part of developer relations. It's something that it takes a while for people to develop that skill. But I think a lot of it really comes down to building strong relationships with the people internally, you know, product and engineering teams. I think they need to see that you're adding value and that you've built trust with them. I used to talk about this with my team at, at Google and saying like, you know, the engineering team want, you want to get in there and they need to feel like you're kind of in the trenches with them and that you're helping them succeed before you start coming with them a bunch, with a bunch of feedback and suggestions about things that they should do. It's like any relationship, you know, there's things that are appropriate to, you know, ask your wife that you wouldn't necessarily ask on a first date, for example. So if you need to get to a point where you're have that kind of relationship with product and engineering before you're bringing them feedback and suggestions, or I don't think it's going to be received particularly well. And then once you have that, then it goes back to what I was saying earlier about understanding what those people care about and then articulating it in that way. And I wrote an article about this on my blog as well, about how do you kind of influence people to care about developer experience. And one of the the other sort of tactical things. So I think foundationally, you need to get people you know, on your side and see that you're a value add and they have trust there. And you need to articulate things in terms of what they care about. But another thing tactically that I think is really effective is sort of building like a coalition for an idea. So it's one thing to kind of walk into a room with 10 people and then start saying like, hey, I think we should do things this way. And if no one has heard that before, a lot of times... If there's resistance and that person kind of has the loudest mouth in the in the room or the loudest voice in the room, people might kind of just like you know pile onto that and agree with the person. So I think tactically, what works better, at least in my experience, is you start with some people that are probably going to be in that room that are friendly to you, and you start having conversations with them about the idea that you want to to articulate and get them on your side. And it's also a good way to practice sort of your argument in the way that you explain your idea to different people. And it's better to do that with a friendly audience than you know the hardest audience to start with. So you can kind of build up momentum with all these different people and you you and then eventually you go into the room with 10 people and maybe you already have seven or eight of them on your side. They've already heard this pitch and said, hey, it sounds great. And you've gotten them on their side. And then it's a lot easier at that point because the stakeholders, even if there's resistance, they're not just hearing the idea from you. They're going to end up hearing it championed from essentially everyone. Yeah, and if, you know, the senior management, let's say, or, you know, the business has a clear view of how valuable developer relations is, then I'm sure it's definitely a lot easier. Yes, for sure. Sean, it's been great uh, talking to you today. You shared quite a lot of uh, great insights that I really enjoyed. If someone wants to hear more from you, how can they reach you? Well, I'm very active on Twitter. You can find me at my name, Chompos, and as well as on LinkedIn. And if you're interested in Skyflow, and as I mentioned, we're hiring not only my team, but essentially all functions at Skyflow, you can check us out at skyflow.com. Or you can reach out to me directly on Twitter. My DMs are are open if anything I said resonated with you. Hopefully there are some uh, nuggets 
of useful advice in there. That's great. Thank you. And, you know, anything that you're watching or, you know, reading that now or did so recently and got you excited? Yeah. So I've been working my way through Carolyn Luco. I think I'm saying your name right, maybe. And James Martin's book, uh, Developer Relations, How to Build and Grow a Successful Developer Program. And I think this is, that's by far the best book on developer relations strategy that I've read. I think there's quite a few, there's some decent books on explaining the roles of tactics, but I think as someone who's like a developer relations leader, they 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 really get this space and there's a lot of really, really good stuff in there. And then the other book that I read this last year, but I always recommend it is a book called Range, Why Generalists Triumph in a Specialized World. And it's a great book on how specializing, specialization or specializing too early hurts your ability to problem solve because you end up seeing everything through the same lens. And there's lots of really, really good examples in the book that they go through. And I think, you know, part of the reason why it resonated so much with me is I consider myself kind of a long time generalist. So maybe it's appealing to my ego. So I end up recommending it to everyone, but it's, uh, I think it's a fantastic read. Thank you. Thank you so much for the recommendations. Uh, and thank you very much for joining us in this podcast. It's been great having you. Thank you so much for having me. And uh, to our listeners, thank you for listening to the DevRelX podcast, the podcast devoted to developer marketing and relations. You can listen to all episodes, find free resources, the latest news, and join our community at devrelx.com. And you can subscribe to our bite-sized bi-weekly digest or follow us on Twitter at slash data HQ. Thank you for listening.